Hello, Sola Travelers. Welcome to the fourth episode of season two of the Sola Traveler podcast. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has subscribed here or followed me on Instagram. Uh, we are really building a community, and more than that, we are all learning from one another about our fears, joys, and experiences. Now, if you're just joining, season one is where you'll find all the practical tools you need to get started with your solo travels. All the good stuff about safety, community, and developing skills like learning a new language or finding your tribe wherever you may roam. But season two is going to be a little different this time around in that one, the episodes are going to be shorter, and two, I'm going to start having a little fun with some stories from my trips. So remember, if you like what you hear, hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore sola underscore traveler and stay tuned for the good things to come. So on the last episode, I talked about how I met my husband on a solo outing in Mexico City during the pandemic. Um, a lot of solitude, but I wasn't giving up. Uh, I wanted to get out. I wanted to meet people. And um, I talked a little bit about how, how it helped me see the value in always pushing to do things alone without fear of judgment. And in this episode, I'll, I'll discuss how the most amazing things happen when we stop judging ourselves um, and we can learn from real life instead of prematurely judging others. Because sometimes when you're out there alone, you need to count on people, real people, who you didn't necessarily travel with or ever think you'd spend time with. But somehow they were exactly what you needed. And if you hadn't been completely vulnerable and alone, you would never have known how to count on others like them. And that's where my trip to Miami, Florida taught me so much. Ah, Miami, you know, with all due respect to Miami, there's as many things I love about it as I hate. For example, Miami brings people from all over the world together, but they're all looking for the same thing. Power, sex, money, and glitz. And even though that can be fun sometimes, if you're too sober, it can be a really hard pill to swallow. You see, there are a lot of cities I've visited in the world that have a special currency. In Los Angeles, it's who you know and the car you drive. In Washington, D.C., it's who you know and who you're willing to screw over. In Mexico City, it's who you know and how much money you have. And in Miami, it's all about who you know and sex. There, I said it. Miami has an especially slimy underbelly. It's not that you have to go to Miami and live it that way, but it's a place where living it that way is easier to do. And every time you meet someone in Miami who you think just wants to be your friend, they turn around and remind you that sex is a very real industry. Um, I ended up in Miami Sola the first time because this guy I had been talking to, a friend of a friend who I met on New Year's Eve one year and had stayed in touch with, proposed we meet there. And uh, he even sent me the screenshot of his ticket um, to show that he had booked his, his flight and everything. And he was sending me restaurant ideas. And I mean, the guy really had me convinced that there was no way he was going to miss the opportunity to see me again and, and finally hook up. And I was fresh out of a divorce and fell for it. But trust me, he was good. <laughs> and so when he told me the day before my flight to Miami, he wasn't going to be able to make it, I lost my mind. Um, but I didn't lose my mind for long. I mean, 
sorry, buddy, but I have a ticket to Miami. And it wasn't because I was going to go alone that I wasn't going to go. And I remember talking to my mom and weighing the options, and it was so embarrassing, really, to feel that naive. But I wasn't going to let that stop me from having a good time. Uh, so a little shaken, I, I dried my eyes, I booked an Airbnb, and I packed my bags. Um, I got on the plane and landed around 9 p.m. By 9.20 p.m., I was already dressed to go out, and then I ordered an Uber pool. And man, do I miss the pre-pandemic days of Uber pools. Those were such simple times. <laughs> uh, I really made so many friends at Uber pools everywhere I went, because if you just got lucky and had the right attitude, you could, one, help the planet, and two, make memories all in one little trip. Um, and that's what happened that night in Miami. In the, in the back seat of the Uber were these two girls. Uh, their makeup and their clothes glittered. And there were faint wafts of perfume uh, that caught my attention all the way in the front seat. And uh, all of a sudden I hear one say, Honey, your dress is unbuttoned. And without hesitation, she leaned forward to close my buttons on the back of my dress. And I said, oh, thank you so much. And I said, what's your name? And her name was Yana. And her friend was Natalia, who was visiting from Russia for the week. Um, and they were on their way to a club. And I told them my sob story about the guy who dumped me and how I was alone and blah, blah, blah. I mean, basically, in terms of safety, I did everything wrong. But I'm sure the loneliness was too overpowering to miss the opportunity to latch on to strangers that night. Um, so I said, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. I was just on my way to a restaurant. And, and well, Yana said, you have to come with us. We're, we're going to Bioli. Uh, Bioli is a classic pillar of Miami nightlife. It's one part restaurant and one part dance floor and three parts bar. And when you walk in there, there are attractive employees moving in, dancing on the table, holding flamethrowers and uh, champagne, surrounded by beautiful people in exceptionally cool clothes, in spite of the humidity, which I'm always fascinated by. Um, and there are models who pretend to be interested in chit-chat, but are far too cool to bother, and men dropping thousands of dollars on bottle service from around the world. And I had never been a table girl, and these these girls who go from you know expensive tables to another where where the the centerpiece is like a two thousand dollar bottle of gin. I had never been that girl. Um, I remember in high school and and university, girls were really into between brackets getting invited to a table like it was a form of social currency. But I never cared. Uh, that night was different though. I had new friends to impress and I wasn't going to let them down. Um, and I also had these ideas about Russian women, you know, came in thinking like uh, weird things. I think there's this horrible stereotype about Eastern European women when they travel to cities, what they're looking for. Um, there is unfortunately a, a large sex and marriage trade in Eastern Europe because you have so many women who are extremely beautiful and have found quick ways to get out using their looks. Um, and that was how I had gone into, not entirely gone in with that approach, but I knew there was a possibility that that's what 
I was surrounded by. But I, I, really wanted to, I really wanted to know more. You know, we talked about curiosity in the Nashville episode, and this was similar. Um, this, these girls were so compassionate and sweet, and so there was nothing about them that I thought was alarming, on the contrary. Um, and I will say getting invited to a table in Miami is, is funny. It's all about looks, really. And that's what Miami is. And in fact, you can pay people to sit at your table just to look like they're part of this wild, amazing, exclusive experience you and only you are able to offer the world. And I was hooked. It was like being in a zoo with exotic animals I'd never seen before. And there was this group of Canadian French guys there for a bachelor party. They started to chat to me and I speak French. And so it was like an easy in. And uh, pretty soon we were sitting at their table. And uh, I felt like I had it made. Like my ego was so, so low. Uh, or sorry, so, so affected by what had happened that for me to feel that kind of level of attractiveness... Um, I can't lie, it, was, it felt great. I can see how this currency works. You know, you feel low, someone brings you up, and it's very addictive. Um, but once you're at a table, you can't leave a table. You see, it's very tricky. You have to go from table to table. You can't just leave the table. So we were kind of stuck at this table. And and I started to get a little bored because I don't, like I said, I really rarely drink when I'm um, traveling alone. And I was just watching everyone around me stand there, just kind of moving, chatting a little bit. But it was really just like being on uh, display, you know? And I think that's a huge part of what Miami is. You're, you're really on display. There's so many opportunities for people to be sort of a part of a spectacle um, for others. And that can get a bit surreal. Um, and needless to say, you know, as I'm standing there looking cool or whatever, looking hot, looking sexy, <laughs> I, I noticed that as the night progressed, my, my girlfriend started to drift off into the club. And I was like, okay, well what the hell, where are they going? Like, they're my, they're my pillars, you know? They're the ni- Miami, the Miami nightlife natives. Uh, and I went to find one of them, and I saw she was talking to this much older man at a bar. And I was like, wow, okay, okay, that's what this is. We're, this is real, you know? Those, those classic stereotypes you hear about um, is really happening. And I don't think by any means um, they were call girls, but I think there was an emotional vulnerability. Well, how about this? I, I did think for a second that they were call girls, but over the next few days spending time together, what I realized was that was not uh, the exchange that was happening around me, neither for them nor for many other women. The exchange was about validity, validation, the exchange was about getting attention because most of these women are alone too. And they're not necessarily looking to exchange sex for money. What they're looking for is real love and affection and someone who feels like family, someone who will protect them, someone who will help them 
establish themselves in the United States, someone who will bring them some sort of value um, where they couldn't find it back home. And so they're completely vulnerable and their whole lives they've been kind of told that there is a way you can get out of this situation. And so even though these uh, scenarios I was seeing looked like an exchange for money, they really weren't. They were big vulnerabilities being exchanged for someone else's desire to have power and control. And I think that was the most uh, revelatory part. My my own judgments um, about this kind of lifestyle wouldn't have allowed me to see just how similar so many of us are when we feel alone. Because there I was in a situation where I felt completely floored by someone else, um, and I was invalidating myself. I was ready to get out there and, and feed my ego in ways that weren't typical. And I saw just how similar, you know, the, the darker sides of loneliness could be, what they, the situations they could get us into. And it's very much something that I appreciate from this particular journey is that I realized that we are so judgmental of ourselves that we forget to see how similar we all are. We are all really trying to survive. We are all trying to feel a company grounded, protected in some way when we're out there alone. And I'm so much more impressed now by the the depth and the complexity of these situations uh, than just simply calling someone, how do you call it, like a sugar baby. I think that is very much part of it and there is a side to it that is not um, not necessarily necessary. You don't have to receive the gift. You don't have to do these things. But the other side wants to fulfill their needs as well. And so you see this exchange happen between uh, women and men, men and women, or, sorry, men and men, women and women, and it gives you a very new perspective on, on what humans really want. And if you're in a place where you haven't fully understood uh, what it means to be alone and love yourself, which is a journey, we are all susceptible um, to making decisions that we think will enrich us, but at the end of the day, end up taking away from our liberty, taking away from our autonomy, uh, which is, I think, the worst situation to get yourself into. So that was my trip to Miami. I learned so much. I learned how much uh, we shouldn't judge others, but recognize this very sensitive part of humanity. And for myself, at least, I, I think I learned how to be an observer in that trip not necessarily be pulled in uh, because of my interests on an anthropological level, but put some serious boundaries up uh, to get myself stronger, to, to learn how to be alone out there and put limits on how much time I was going to spend in certain environments, um, like bars, like uh, nightclubs, because the truth is, when you're vulnerable like that, 
when someone's hurt you, there's, there's no need to stretch it. There's no need to stretch yourself. Uh, so it's just something to think about. I think it's amazing when a solo journey helps you, snaps you back into yourself after something painful has happened. But it's also important to remember that you're still fragile. And so putting some limits on how much you get involved uh, in the situations that you're going to be presented with is vital to you healing uh, as well as enjoying yourself. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, Again, I hope the city of Miami doesn't hate me for this story, but I really learned so much. And I hope that you will continue to listen to the podcast, follow me on Instagram, and I'll speak to you next time.